they pass out in the barn, and then a few days later or a short time later, they disappear entirely and they just vanish. But behind, they leave a bloody set of clothes and this key tags room 31. Welcome to the Gary Scott Thomas Show. Here's what we know. The podcast with unexpected conversations. Listen each week as we engage in unscripted conversations where we'll be just as surprised as you will be with where the dialogue goes. So join us each week and be privy to the captivating conversations that are sure to ensue. Here's your host, Gary Scott Thomas. You know what I love about doing the Here's What You Know podcast, ever since I've been doing it for about a year now, is I have loved the interesting people I get to talk to that, honestly, I would not have talked to as my day-to-day life progressed. And one of them, I will tell you right now, I'm going to let you know, Luke, Luke, Jared Coomer is with me right now. I am an English lit major, and as they say of all English lit majors, there's a book inside them that should stay there. So I am... (laughs) I am thrilled when I get to talk to authors. How are you, my friend? I'm doing very well, and uh, congratulations on your your English lit major. <laughs> dude, it's worked out. I mean, dude, dude, I went to college well before you were born. It's all good. <laughs> it's possible. It's possible. Hey, listen, some of Shakespeare's work weren't finished yet when I graduated. <laughs> well, let me tell you, you look very good. I saw a picture. You look very good. All things considered. Well, thank you very much. Uh, so, Luke has uh, been a you're a writer. You've been published in the New York Times, Washington Post, The Village Voice. You know some of these program pl- places that are struggling to survive and you know get noticed by everybody else. He's he's been published in them, and also been another. I do want before we go into uh, to where we're going to go on this on your new book, Takers Mad. Tell me, how did you get into the world of writing? Was it always a passion? I mean, when I was a kid, I was good at two things. I was good at writing. I was good at playing harmonica. And at some point, I thought I was probably not going to make it as a harmonica player. And I pursued writing. And eventually, you know, that started, uh, in terms of journalism, that started taking a job at a restaurant across the street from the New York Times. Eventually, (laughs) managing to get a very, very low-level job at the Times. Uh, and then, you know, pestering enough people to get some stuff in the paper and going from there. It's uh, it's let me talk to interesting people like yourself, and it's uh, let me write some interesting stories such as this one that I've been working on. I uh, I've told everybody before, uh, you know, when when you do and you take speak to classes and stuff like that about getting into radio or any entertainment industry, and I include writing in that. The most important thing is to get the foot in the door and then always say yes when they ask you anything. Ninety percent of the time, say yes. Then there's a few times when you should not say yes. Uh, but yes, in general, uh, I say getting the foot in the door is, is a great piece of advice that I'd say that to every young person. Uh, sometimes it's hard as a young person to figure out which door do I want to get my foot in. And I think that with all the changes that have been happening in the last few decades, and you mentioned uh, how some newspapers have been struggling and lately are doing good again in some, in some cases. Uh, but I think that with all the changes lately, it's hard for young people to sometimes figure out, okay, where is my, where is my career going to go? Uh, what do I want to be? And how do I get started um, today for something that's going to work out in a few years? Uh, and it's a, it's a struggle, uh, but I think that people uh, will do well to be enthusiastic and, uh, you know, keep trying different things and, you know, 
stay with your, your passion within those different things that you try. When I reference them being struggling, I think I made myself, I, I attempted a joke that I don't think worked. I was just trying to say the places yeah. you've never heard of, like the New York Times, yeah. the Washington Post, opposed to the Village Voice. Well, well you're not so often. The, the Village Voice, of course, you know, they, they stopped printing uh, some years ago. So it, it, it has been some tough times. Um, and then I think that more recently, uh, some business models have adapted, and hopefully uh, we see a resurgence. Uh, certainly, uh, it's really interesting to me because so much of my research for this current book or audio book, Takers Mad, uh, was looking at a different time period, uh, the 1890s largely, where it was it was the sort of birth of the kind of, of journalism we reflect back on these days, uh, where you have this, this stiff, stiff competition between Hearst and Pulitzer and all these other uh, publishers of New York dailies and, and elsewhere too, of course, uh, that were, were fiercely competing for circulation. Um, and we look back at that as a heyday, but of course for them, uh, it, was, it was a different kind of struggle, a different kind of competition. So, I mean, it's, a, it's a really interesting to compare today and yesteryear. Well, let's go ahead and go down that road because this is this is a murder that took place in New York City in the Gilded Age, as you call it. Uh, and and this really became, even though we've forgotten it today, because the truth of it is we've forgotten so many things that were a big story. Hell, we can go back 10 years and you will have forgotten mm-hmm. stories that were big stories 10 years ago. I mean, the truth of it is most 22-year-olds have no idea who the hell O.J. Simpson is or why he was famous. Yes, if not for Netflix and these other these other studios revamping some of those things from this time, Andrew Cannon and others. But you're absolutely right. Yeah, Andrew Cannon was one of the bigger biggest things. I mean, he uh, he uh, killed Versace, Giovanni Versace. I mean, a serial killer and stuff, and and it, it gets lost in history just as this story did. But really, would you argue? Because I think I would. This was the first sensationalized media murder. I think that the 1888 murders in Whitechapel, uh, which happened just before the the murder that was my focus in which happened in New York. So Whitechapel is the section of London. And these were the ones that were attributed to Jack the Ripper. And because of a, a variety of factors... Uh, these really did become uh, this first worldwide media sensation. Uh, you know, you had this sort of fruition of the, the telegraph really came into its own, and you also had the new business model of syndication. Uh, and so you also had uh, rising literacy rates around the world, and you had uh, cheaper printing models. Uh, so you had lots of newspapers, and you had more people reading them, and you had the ability to transmit these stories all over. All these things came together, and then the way that the information dripped out from the sensational murder in London, or sensational series of murders in London, really allowed that to be a worldwide phenomenon. We had you know, uh, people talking about seeing uh, Jack the Ripper in South Africa, in Jamaica, all over the, the world, uh, because people were glued to the story, uh, you know, very much in, in the U.K., but well beyond, including America. And so it was, it was a big thing in the United States. There was this great fear that Jack the Ripper, this person, this, this culprit who became known as Jack the Ripper, was going to travel on an Atlantic steam, steamer, uh, which was a, a relatively uh, new uh, sort of life-changing invention um, in terms of the, the means of travel. So he was going to travel there to New York, uh, and possibly terrorize New York as as he had wanted. I mean, again, this was a, a hysterical fear, but it was a, a fear that was certainly, certainly in New York. And 
amid this also you had uh, a lot of fear of the new immigrants that were coming with with the ease of travel with the as travel became easier you had immigrants coming from further foreign places and this sort of disrupted the apple carts of new york life See, enter I, this murder go ahead please no, no, please. Oh, I, because I, I was thinking when I said it was the first sensationalized murder case in, in the United States. Because you're exactly right. I mean, in Europe, we had uh, we had Jack the Ripper. I uh, I find it interesting because you were you, you painted such a vivid picture of what everything that had to happen for this tsunami to get created, including that was the first time in history that a large part of the American populace, much less the world populace, could read. It was something yeah. that they could read a story because the, the majority of it, you couldn't read. There were still, even at that time, most authors, they would have, not even authors, but I would say there would be communities where they would have readings, where you would have somebody would read books to people because they couldn't read. I mean, it was a huge change in communication, and uh, you know, obviously, it had great benefits too. Uh, you know, rising literacy rates and lo- rising education. Uh, of course, that's you know was important for our burgeoning democracy in the United States. But also, there there was consequences. Uh, well, at least the, the way a story can spread. You certainly can make parallels uh, today uh, with the, the advent of social media and these kind of things. So, in this case, all that is stage setting to say that there was this this really. Uh, Terrible, tragic murder uh, in along the waterfront uh, in New York. There was a, a woman, a dead woman, was found in 1891. So just a few years after uh, those murders in London, she's found in a locked hotel room in this, this city hotel near Manhattan's waterfront. And I don't want to go into the gory details, but it was a it was a horrible scene. Someone had cut her up very badly, and this came only a few years after the autumn of terror that we discussed in London. And the next day, the New York coroner, he declared that Jack the Ripper had indeed crossed the Atlantic and come to America. And as we were discussing, the the papers in New York, Pulitzer, Hearst, etc., they were competing savagely to increase their circulations. And so they splashed this story on the front pages and just ran with it from days, four days. It just spread and spread and grew into a bigger, bigger story. Soon there's panic here in New York and there's tremendous pressure on the police. Uh, Inspector Tom Burns, he he put all hands in deck. They've got a manhunt extending not just throughout the city and New York State, but all the way to Washington, to Chicago, to even other countries. Uh, and that panic only ended when the police abruptly charged an immigrant, an Algerian man who didn't speak English, with this crime. And this history is the basis of my overall original Taker's Mad. Now, what, what what's interesting is during my research, I actually ended up finding new evidence that dramatically changes how we should understand the case and may even identify a new suspect. Y'all, we're gonna we're gonna go down that. But I I I I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I I'm not gonna let you gloss over the murder itself. No, because, no, because I think because I think it's important because when we hear Jack the Ripper, I think I think most people know that that it was horrific crime scenes. But in the age of, you know, CSI and everything else, I think we become more used to it and seeing all the documentaries and stuff. I mean, Jack the Ripper was almost pathologically surgical. Evisceration, right? Uh, that that it wasn't just somebody having as horrible as it sounds like to have your throat cut. It wasn't. It was a complete desiccation of the body. 
Well, well, let me say this. I, I think what has happened is that over the years, the, the story has been somewhat uh, both sensationalized and then sanitized as these things, as a cycle tends to happen. Uh, and so, for example, now there's a there's a museum in, in London that's dedicated to Jack the Ripper. Uh, and we think of it almost in this kind of cartoon sense of, you know, like a supervillain, like, you know, I don't know, Darth Vader or something like this. Yeah. But then that's, that's missing that, of course, this was, these were, Terrible, terrible crimes. Uh, the, these women were killed brutally, um, and uh, you know they had lives too. There's a, there's a wonderful book, uh, Holly Rubenfeld, uh, the excuse me, Holly Rubenhold, uh, the five it's called that details the lives of the the women that we know were were killed by that culprit. In the case of the the murder that I covered, yes, it was it was it was it was gruesome. Uh, the the woman was, as I say, and again, I don't I don't want to get into too graphic of details uh, for our listeners, but the woman was, let, let me just step aside, the woman was badly cut up. I don't know how else to say it. Uh, she was badly cut up, and there was a lot, a lot of blood, um, and uh, it was a terrible scene. Uh, this is this this scene that this this young man who was working at the, the hotel, he was really just a kid, he found this, this scene in the morning of April 24th, 1891. He, it was his job to knock on all the rooms of the CD hotel, and if anyone was staying in the hotel room, was time to say, you know, mosey along, and he gets to room 31, and the door is locked, and so he has to go get a passkey downstairs, and he opens up the door, and he finds this woman uh, on the bed who had been savagely killed, uh, and, and that's what sparks this this investigation. Uh, the, the important thing to know here is that it was always presumed that whoever did this crime had that key to the locked door. And they left with it. Sort of strangely, they, they left the behind the murder weapon. The murder weapon was found, but that key was never found. And uh, Amir Ben Ali, he's the man that was charged with this crime. And initially, he was just brought as a witness. And the investigation sort of spiraled out of control. And there was more and more uh, pressure on Inspector Tom Burns to uh, uh, declare a killer. Uh, as as hysteria was being sown in New York, and eventually they they charged him with Irben Ali. If you look at the investigation, there's a lot of problems with it. I went to I downloaded sorry I digitized the uh, the trial transcripts from the law library and went through all about 1,200 pages of of trial transcripts. There's a lot of problems in those court proceedings. But eventually, they did get a conviction. Amir Ben Ali was sent away. He was sent to Sing Sing, and then he was sent to a variety of mental asylums after he had a he had a breakdown inside. Well, about a dozen years, oh, excuse me, about a decade later, uh, somebody turned in that key. They turned in the missing key to the hotel room uh, that had always been presumed to be held by the murderer, and. They submitted this, and it was after a long campaign to free Ben Ali uh, by concerned New Yorkers who realized there was something amiss about this trial. Um, and the the person who turned this in, he was a, a prominent business person. He uh, I actually I just tweeted this um, in in reference to what I was hoping to bring up in the show, but he he actually had a letter written by New Jersey's governor. Uh, saying that he it would be okay for him to remain on, anonymous. That's the person who turned to this key, um, had friends in high places, and he managed to uh, conceal his identity and never get the close look that he probably should have. Because after all, why did he have this this key 
and withhold it while he knew there was an innocent person lingering in, in prison. In 2020, I went up to the New York State Archives in Albany, and there's this rule in New York uh, State that any correspondence with the governor has to be preserved. So I went up there, and uh, Ben Ali had been applying for clemency, him and his lawyers, that is, had been applying for clemency for years. And so they actually had this trove of documents. These, you know, four boxes were waiting for me. They had been hauled out of storage. Uh, and I started digging through them, and it was, it was very moving stuff because there's correspondences from the lawyers uh, with with the executive office, but then also there's handwritten letters from Ben Lee, who detailed all the the terrible things that happened to him during the investigation, um, and what it was like to sit in a trial where he didn't speak English and he didn't understand the proceedings. But then also, I opened up this envelope, and inside the envelope was that key, the missing key that had been turned in, uh, that both made Ben Ali have to suffer for a decade in prison, but then also ultimately led to his freedom. That's nothing short of amazing. And let's, let's, let's go through that because I'd read, was it, was it the attorney general or was it Tom Burns himself who said, listen, if the, if the, the Jack the Ripper murders had happened here in New York city, I'd have somebody in the, in the slammer within a week. He said a shorter time frame, uh, depending on how the quote is interpreted, uh, you know, uh, within days. Uh, but yeah, that's Tom Burns. That was Tom Burns. And again, you were mentioning about how figures can be forgotten over the years. Tom Burns was an incredibly powerful person, uh, perhaps the most powerful person in New York. Uh, he was the inspector, he, the head of detectives. Uh, so he's Inspector Tom Burns, uh, but then he later became the, the chief of police. And he was this 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 towering figure uh, to which we owe a lot of uh, the language today. So, for example, he is the person that coined the term and invented the tactic of the third degree, uh, which was uh, roughly equivalent to what we might call enhanced interrogation today. Or torture. You know, A.K.A. torture. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Uh, <laughs> he... Uh, he also, he, he is the one who gave us the Rogues Gallery, you know, the term the Rogues Gallery. Mm-hmm. He set up a, 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 in a police headquarters on Mulberry Bend, he set up a, a viewing area for you, people to see all these, these regular criminals. And then he was also a great promoter of himself. And so he published this in, as a book as well, you know, published by Tom Burns. It was a, it was a great seller. Uh, he, he kind of fashioned himself as a, as a real-life uh, Sherlock Holmes. And so he had people write these Ghostwriter, I guess you'd say, ghostwrite these stories where he was the, the main hero based on his case files. He was this great promoter. He's this, this huge figure. And yet he had made this claim uh, to a reporter during the, during the, the time when uh, there was such rampant his interest in the Jack Ripper killings uh, that uh, if this had happened in his jurisdiction, he would have some locked up in short order. Uh, well, uh, you can imagine uh, he also had a relationship with the, the press here in New York, a very, uh, it's always been a tough relationship between the, the press and the, uh, the police. And the, I think that they were sort of eager to sort of stick it to him when then all of a sudden there was this murder the coroner was blaming on Jack the Ripper. So he even once had had an opportunity to sort of prove his mettle, but in another sense, they were uh, very eager to watch him succeed or fail because it, it made for great copy, right? So that's, that's the thing. And I think 
we're not going to kid anybody and saying that th- that police work in the beginnings of this country uh, all the way up until recently have not had their, especially in that day and age. In that day and age where there was very anti-immigrant behavior, which is hilarious when you consider that the vast majority of this country are immigrants. But there was that, that, so they just started, they started accumulating suspects. So Inspector Burns, uh, Chief Inspector Burns started accumulating suspects. And then Amir Lee, Mania, how do you say his name? I'm sorry. Amir Ben Ali. Amir Ben Ali. I'm sorry. Amir Ben Ali no, no, no. becomes becomes a, a witness, and from there, just because he didn't look like everybody else, or sounded like anybody else, or talked like anybody else, it was easy to just start putting him. Well, he's in this category, and he's in this category, and then that became the forefront as of the their investigation. That's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Amir, Amir Ben Ali had a lot of things going against him. Most cheaply, he didn't speak English. Well, they and, called him Frenchy, right? Very good, Gary. Uh, yes, they, they they called him Frenchy because he was indeed a a French citizen. Because at the time, Algeria was a colony of France, and he'd actually served in the French army. You know, he's he was in the French army, but that didn't mean he spoke French. And I mean, he was from, he was from this very mountainous, um, you know, remote region of Algeria, and it's not as if uh, you know serving the French army uh, came with a language course. And but everyone presumes that he spoke either English or French, and so when he didn't seemingly understand something, then it was it was said that he was lying, and it was it was it was pointed to as as acting suspicious. Uh, and then this continued into into the courtroom. I mean. I guess to back up a little bit, I, I always like to point this out. That yes, he's held as a witness uh, because it's it's somehow legal uh, at the time. I mean, this is this is lapsed and it's been reinstated and all this. But you can hold a material witness, meaning someone who knows something intimate about a crime, without them being suspected of having committed that crime indefinitely, potentially. And so him, and as you say, many others were just sitting in the tombs. They were just sitting in the tombs while the police built their built their case. I mean, at once there was a tremendous amount of pressure to arrest somebody, and then there was a tremendous amount of pressure to get a conviction. And so if you look back to those, those trial transcripts, there are so many problems. I mean... <laughs> Most basically, the one of translation, uh, as I would like to point out, you know, Amir Ben Ali, he didn't have a, a, a real translator. He had a cigar seller who spoke Arabic, but who wasn't from Algeria. And so he spoke a, a different dialect of Arabic. And so sometimes he couldn't understand what Amir Ben Ali was saying or, or you know, transmit that to Amir Ben Ali. I mean, and this is in the court tr- transcripts. So you could just imagine what it would be like to be sitting in that courtroom as a mirror where you know that your life is on the line, but you have no idea what's going on because you don't speak the language and they haven't hired a professional translator to make sure that you know how what's going on, what you're being accused of, and how to defend yourself. And also, the DA you know, really took advantage of this. That's a stuff of nightmares that are made out of. And and I, I, I always like to point out, if you think things are bad now, we've gotten a lot better than when this was commonplace, when when this could actually be allowed to happen. Uh, and, and we all sit back now because we have our standards that we have. We all have a certain level of standards that we think should be 
should be a bore above the board that everybody should relate to. But back at that uh-huh. time, back at that time, it wasn't, and it was allowed to get away with. I mean, we've talked about torture and we talk about DNA. I had, I had read where you had said they were trying to find blood under his fingertips. How did they do that? I mean, during the investigation, it's pretty clear that uh, Amir Ben Ali received the same sort of treatments that others did at the time, which was this, this third degree. This the, the basic method uh, for getting a confession. It was to let's just say treat people not nice. Yeah, uh, I mean, they dug really under his brutally. Really brutally, uh, and uh, the important thing to note is that despite all of everything that happens to Amir Ben Ali, he never confessed. He never confessed mm-hmm. to the crime, and I think that's really significant because if you look back at accounts of uh, what's what police procedures was then uh, and the, the things that people did, a lot of people confess to crimes, certainly, that they didn't commit. Amir Ben Ali, he, he would not confess. I mean, and then uh, you, you, see, you see other things uh, in this case that really make you, it's very movie stuff. I would say that, yes, a lot has changed. A lot has changed from that time uh, to our own. But there's other things that I really found troubling how in some cases little has changed. That material witness thing is, is significant because that came up again um, in recent times. Um, also, the use of sort of uh, cooperating witnesses, aka snitches. Uh, in in the case of Amir Ben Ali, one of the one of the things that was used to get a conviction is that they said, you know, they, as in the DA presented in the courtroom, uh, that there was a man who saw Amir Ben Ali. In a Queens jail, you know, the borough of Queens, uh, in Queens jail, eating with the murder weapon. This was, was a knife. Um, and this this person who had spent time with Amir Ben Ali, you know, about a month or so earlier um, in the Queens jail, so that he was eating with this, this knife. Well, it, 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 it is not, in my mind, plausible that uh, Amir Ben Ali would have snuck a a knife into prison and then eaten his food with the same knife that was, you know, sharp enough to eviscerate somebody, as you say. Um, But that was, was used as testimony and the, the snitch described the knife. Well, of course he described the knife because, and which was very moving to the jury, but of course he described the knife because the knife, an image of the knife was printed in the newspaper. I mean, it, it, the the it, it, it's all very circular, uh, genius in some ways, and I don't uh, dismiss Tom Burns's uh, sort of uh, cleverness in winning a suspect and winning a conviction. But in other ways, you can just imagine, as you say, just nightmarish for Amir Ben Ali uh, to to have this happen to him. Which, of course, later we learn. Definitively, that he's exonerated. Definitively, uh, that you know someone else turns in this this key that was held on to for years. Uh, that means that I mean, he 
I guess it's hard to be you 100 percent sure uh, 130 plus years later, but it's pretty inconceivable that someone else would be able to turn this this key um, that was the key to the locked room hotel room, and Amir Ben Ali still have done it. In fact, the person who turned in the key said that he was convinced all along that Amir Ben Ali was innocent. Now, I my my question is that person that held on to evidence all that time, that person did not receive the same scrutiny as Amir Ben Ali. That person was not looked at the way that Amir Ben Ali was looked at. And uh, I think there's good reason today to examine, uh, you know, why did someone hold on to that evidence for all that time? Why did someone present an <laughs> almost a half-hearted alibi uh, that was really not supported, uh, but then was allowed to skate by uh, without being examined by the press the way that Amir Bentley was, and without being examined by authorities um, and held accountable in the way that Amir Bentley was. Except, of course, we know that Amir Bentley was just wrongfully convicted. We are going to go down that path. We're going to talk about that person. We're going to talk about that evidence. And we're also going to talk about audiobooks. Takers Man. Oh, great. That's the uh, that's the the book. The author is uh, Luke Jared Coomer, and we're coming right back with more. Here's what we know right after this. So I want to tell you about our new sponsor, The Gym Guys. I have been working out with them for over a year now. It all started with a pandemic and there was no place to go. The gyms were closed, all that kind of stuff. I found The Gym Guys because they come to you. The commute is theirs. Isn't that one of the worst parts working out? Is You have to factor in the commute time. Not with The Gym Guys. And it's more motivating. It's one thing to say, I'm going to work out today. It's another thing if you know, like, I have Luciana coming over today at 11.15. I got to be ready for it. And and then they change the workouts up for you. They give you an app so when you're working out on your own, you know how to do it right and what you're trying to do. And they also give you access to a nutritionist. It's all there for you. You can take it as, you know, if you're just starting your journey or maybe you want to take your journey to the next level. Maybe we've got a contest on how you can win 100 free sessions with your friends and coworkers. It's at TheBiggestMover.com. TheBiggestMover.com. But you'll find the gym guys on the web. G-Y-M-G-U-Y-Z. So, Luke... My son's name, Luke. I'm used to saying that a lot. Oh, yeah, is that right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I was listening to one of your previous episodes where you were saying that you just don't hear the name Gary anymore for kids. Uh, it, it, it's, when I was a kid, I never heard the name Luke. I, it was the only Luke in all of my classes. And now, of course, it's, it's you know, uh, coming to its own. And the way that Gary has, has faded will come back, I'm sure. And uh, apparently Luke uh, was... I guess maybe big in years before, given the, the evangelist and stuff. Yeah, uh, but and then and then Star Wars. Well, let's be clear, Star that's Wars. True. That's true. And, you know, you you go from there, and it has a huge impact. But there are these names that you never hear. I mean, you don't hear Mabel, right? But it will. Mabel's a beautiful yeah. name. It really is. It's gonna- Almost a Chuck Berry song, Maybelline, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know if Bertha will ever come back, even though I think Bertha's kind of hot. You know, I mean, somebody's name Bertha is either going to shank you or be the most lovely thing <laughs> you've ever seen in your life. All right. So it's always going to be that situation. <laughs> I, I think that it sounds better if it's, you know, the European way, like Bertha, like, you know, without the teenage sounds, like Greta. Very you good know, point. Bert, 
Bertha is uh, is a little bit different than Bertha. I think that's why it's fallen out of fashion, but I presume that it must have been a European name before it was popular in America. Yeah, well, everything circles back, right? I mean, you're starting to see Evelyn. Evelyn's starting to come back. And that was a that was a name that was old when I was a kid, right? Evelyn was somebody who'd be 100 years old. Well, now you're starting to see these resurgences because they do. Everything comes after a while. And then, you know, right now we're going through that gender nonspecific. And I think we've already been through that. You know, the Taylors... The Evans, that could be male or female. But I think you'll start seeing more and more of those hardline lines, names, because they just come off sounding kind of cool. You know, you've convinced me. If I ever have another daughter, I'm going to name her Larry. Exactly. <laughs> or Bertha. Or you call her Bertha. You know, right, now, right there. In with <laughs> so, so, Luke, I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated. Let's talk about this guy. First of all, you don't, when, you, when you're talking about writing and, and you're talking about doing the stuff that's necessary, if you skipped over what he said earlier, he, he took a bus to Albany and you sat down with four boxes of stuff. Nobody ever thinks about the research, do they? Well, sometimes research is very not glamorous. And also, of course, uh, there's a tremendous amount of research. Research is never glamorous. Let's be clear. Research is never glamorous. Now, you can find cool things, but it's never glamorous. Yes. And and a lot of that these days is pouring over a computer, right? I mean, there's a tremendous, tremendous, a vast, vast amount of information that's available to online, including a lot of great archival materials, you know, old newspaper clippings. I mean, you know, they're they're digitized and searchable in ways. There's there's fantastic stuff. And then sometimes I think there's great rewards for going out and still looking for the remaining things that have not been digitized, whether that's trial transcripts at a law library or whether that's, uh, you know, going up to the, the state archives um, and finding these all these documents that's you know they, they haven't been digitized in part because some of them are you know quite old i mean you know, there's all these folded letters of old papers that i, I was very careful to uh handle uh with, with, with you know the, the respect that they deserve uh, because they're they're very old uh, i w- will say that one of the things that was sort of noteworthy to me is that yes there was four boxes of materials for amir ben ali but he's just one prisoner and after I went through these and then understood of how much these archival documents should change our understanding of this case, I started to think, well, what about all of those other prisoners? What about all those other correspondences with the governor? Sure. I'm sure that there's uh, people who maybe weren't innocent who were claiming their innocence um, and trying to receive clemency. I'm sure it happened. But at the same time, how many other Amir Ben Ali's were there where someone was lingering in prison who didn't belong there, uh, who, was, who was pleading their innocence and really was innocent, uh, but had been railroaded through a court system that was unfair to them? Stunning amount. Stunning amount. There's there's we've seen we've seen all the documentaries and stuff like that has come out where people have yeah. been convicted and put on death row and then come to find out it was overzealous prosecutors and bad police work. I mean, it, it certainly happens. Uh, but I want to go to the man who turned in the key. Let's talk mm-hmm. about him for a minute. George Damon. Um he turns to this key, and there's an affidavit I found in those, those archives in which he explains a story. And what he says in the affidavit is that he was a, he was a resident of Cranford, New Jersey, and he had a property there. Uh, he was also, he doesn't say this in the affidavit, but uh, I know that he was also a uh, successful business person in the city. Um, and 
he owns property in Cranford, New Jersey, this sort of bedroom community, even at the time of New York. He had a, an issue uh, that he needed some work done on his, his property. And so he says that he went to Castle Gardens. This is near the waterfront in New York uh, at the time. And he went there and he hired a worker to come to his place in New Jersey and do this work for him for a period of weeks, um, starting you know a few weeks before this, this, this murder happened. And one night, this supposed person who he didn't, name but he believes was a was a swede or a dane that's you know his estimation uh this person comes home in a bad way in a bad state you know late at night or early in the morning and then no one wants to disturb them because they seem so bad off this big burly person um and they they you know pass out in the barn and then a few days later or a short time later they disappear entirely they just vanish but behind they leave a bloody set of clothes and this key tags room 31. And this is apparently found by a maid who turned in these things to George Damon and his wife. And George Damon, he had read about this case, he says, it is all over the newspapers. And so what he did is he went down to the East River Hotel in Manhattan. And because he worked as a manufacturer of printing presses and letter type, he went down to the East River Hotel and he was able to, you know, he went with a, a friend and uh, he had a couple of beers at the hotel and he had a cigar and he, he waited for someone to come down with a set of keys and he was able, because of his expertise as a, you know, in foundry and in printing presses, uh, to identify the, the letter type of the tag it was tag 31 and uh, understand that the keys before him were the same as the one in his possession. That's what he says. And there's also an affidavit from the person he took with him. But I don't know that that stands up under scrutiny because after all, it doesn't actually establish where was George Damon on the night of the murder. It doesn't establish any of that stuff. It also, bizarre to me that the Preston pursued this, uh, it, it also doesn't mention that George Damon's business at 44 Beekman, where he's a manufacturer of printing presses and letter type founder, uh, was only about a mile or less from the, the murder scene. See what I'm saying? Isn't this fascinating? And oh, by the 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 guy that he implicated, this worker, was never was never heard from again, right? This person, I mean, there's no evidence this person even existed. existed. Yeah. Because, I mean, because George Damon waited more than a decade to turn in this key. So, you know, this 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 case is way cold by then. You know, the, the maid is long gone. Uh, the there, There's no other people supporting uh, his story besides the employee who he brought with him. Uh, a person who is listed in the affidavit is a truck man. I presume that this is a person who drove George Damon's trucks. So there's the another affidavit from the truck man who he brought with him to the East River Hotel. But again, that's an employee, somebody who's you know a little bit malleable because he's he's reliant on George Damon for his income. But that person didn't actually ever see the the supposed farmhand. No one. There's no affidavits of anyone else besides George Damon. Uh, Describing his farmhand. There's also, curiously, there's not an affidavit from his wife in those files. I mean, there, there's no one else 
describing the spawn hens. Uh, uh, there's no record of them. No bloody uh, clothes. No... None of those bloody clothes yeah. that he claimed. Nothing. That, that was long gone. I mean, what the affidavit says is that George Damon and his wife, they, they put the key in a safe and they, they forgot about us, which is it's really hard for me to imagine that someone could forget about something like that. Meanwhile, it really troubling to me is that George Damon said that he always believed that Amir Ben-Ali was innocent of this murder, but that he should be incarcerated anyway because he's probably better uh, in prison that large. Probably He's guilty like of something. Yeah, probably guilty that, of that's something. That's the idea. That's now, a presumption. Now, again, in this in the, in the world of serial killers, which unfortunately we have all become kind of versed in, right? I mean, we've all read mm-hmm. the Thomas Harris, uh, Hannibal Lecter, the, the, the serial That key to me, when I first read when you put that out, that's that just screams trophy. You know what I mean? That. That's that's possible. I mean, there's also the whole return to the crime scene thing. I did I didn't think of uh, that that sort of cliche of returning to the crime scene in his description of returning uh, to the East River Hotel. Or I shouldn't say returning because that's uh, leading a little bit. But in his in George Damon's description of going to the East River Hotel to establish this alibi, um, this is the way that I see it. Uh, it does have it does sort of uh, echo that cliche of returning to the crime scene. And he never suffered anything. There was no jail time. There was no reprimands. There was no fines. N- nothing. Not that I ever found evidence of. No. Uh, he. You know, there's. There's other news sources. Uh, finally, his his identity did sort of uh, trickle out, and so there's other accounts uh, of him later on. He died a short time later. I also think that that's. Uh, significance. And he died in 1906 of uh, Bright's disease. It's a, uh, it's you know what we understand today as uh, a kidney ailment. Uh-huh. Kidney ailment. And uh, it's curious to me that this is uh, just a few years before he passed away because maybe it weighed on his conscience. Uh, again, this is uh, me surmising. Um, but at the same time, I think that there's a, a lot of real clear questions that should have been asked at the time and are worthwhile asking. Uh, today, I mean, can I say these many years later that George Damon definitively killed Carrie Brown was the woman's name. She's often referred to in the press as Shakespeare. I wish I can explain it if you'd like. Uh, but can I say that definitively? No, I guess I can't. But what I can say is that this person withheld evidence, which is a crime, and got away with that, and then also presented a story that is not uh, does not stand up very well. And then the idea that someone would, through, I, I don't know, prejudice, fear or something, allow someone else, another person, to just rot in jail for that long, it's hard for me to swallow unless they had a good reason. And can, maybe that reason is they were hiding something. I can tell you what I can definitively say. I can definitively say that George Damon is a hell of a lot better suspect than uh, Benir, uh, uh, Abir Lee. Amir Ben Lee, you know, a much better suspect, a much more. There's more things that point to his guilt than than Lee's guilt. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, Amir Ben Lee was the wrong case, the wrong place, the wrong time. He happened to be be poor. He happened to not know how to speak English. Uh, he happened to have it. I mean, this is the thing. This is this is what is not different about that time than today. He had a criminal record because he was arrested for vagrancy. I told you he spent time in a Queen's jail. He was arrested for vagrancy, and he had a cast on because you know, he presumably injured his arm. Well, the, the police officer found him and then 
supposed that he was there to, you know, beg. But it's not at all clear that he wasn't just injured and then walking in the wrong neighborhood, you know, because at the time, uh, there wasn't a lot of people who looked like Amir Ben Ali in, in, in that section of Queens. And I think that, uh, you know, he was uh, arrested for a way that we couldn't justify today, um, but uh, that left him with a criminal record. And so it was pretty easy for the DA to now say that, you know, here's this guy that was staying in a seedy hotel room uh, and uh, in this section of New York where there's a lot of indigent people uh, and he has a criminal record. Uh, and you know, they, they start stacking up the, the pieces of a case that leads to conviction. But uh, I, mean, I don't think that uh, I don't think that it stands up uh, under scrutiny. And I think that unfortunately, there's a, a, a enough uh, bias today that you see things similar. Did Burns was Burns alive when Amir Badir Lee got uh, exonerated, or had he passed by then? Tom. Burns. No, he's still alive. He was still alive. He was a very rich man at the time. Uh, Tom Burns. Uh, he was a. Uh, there was this thing called the Lexo Committee. Uh, and there was a commission that was looking at corruption in in the police uh, in the 1890s, uh, only a short time after the trial. And so a lot of Burns's men, uh, and then eventually Burns, uh, either were uh, forced to resign or in some cases indicted for corruption. And so Burns was pushed out as police chief. Um, but he did have a lot of cash because in that investigation, that the Lexo investigation, it was disclosed that he had been getting stock tips from Jay Gould. Uh, and so, you know, in exchange uh, for whatever services he offered in his, his capacity of police chief, he'd been getting these stock tips from Jay Gould. It left him very, very, very wealthy. So well, he was alive to answer your question. Here's here's hoping that justice comes in this way. I I would love to see this turn into a great movie, and then you know these these two rat bastards get the uh, <laughs> vilification that they both deserve. But but before but but it's the audiobooks I want to talk about because you wrote this as it's audible. I'm an audible member, and I'm not getting any money from this. But hey, Bezos, if you want to send me some, feel free to. Um, but uh, with the audible originals. You wrote this as as not a paperback, as not a handheld book. This was an audio drama, huh? That's correct. And I, I should give credit where credit is due. This was brought to life by a phenomenal actor, uh, Christine Bam, and she magically was able to bring these figures from you know the 1890s and you know in the early turn of the century uh, to life. Uh, she's just a phenomenal talent who was able to take on all these personas. Uh, you you mentioned that you are a fan of audiobooks. Yes, I am a huge some, fan. For some people, it's a new thing. Um, I guess it would sort of hark back to an earlier era where radio dramas were were in the shadow of that um, were were uh, prevalent in the United States, as they still are in some cases in the UK. And uh, I think that Christine really. Uh, takes on that tradition and uh, does incredible work becoming these different characters, you know, men, women, uh, people from all different backgrounds and walks of life, people with different accents. Uh, It's really something. People who are good at that are stunning. Did you, were you involved in the selection of Christine Vam as the, uh, as the narrator or, or was that just something? No, here's, we, we think we have the right person. No, I had the pleasure of, uh, being offered, uh, a, 
some other talented people, a, a selection of some talented people, and all of them were, you know, quite good. Uh, but uh, Christine Bam had a had a special knack, uh, and when she was able, to, this this story is told from the perspective, largely uh, in, this, in a first person perspective of uh, Florence Melissa Reese, a real life figure. And when I heard Christine do uh, Florence Reese, it, it was just so good. I mean, she's uh, she's good at that. And then when she in in that sort of audition piece she did uh, some of the other voices and accents it was it was clear that she was the person that i wanted to do this and so i uh, i was very pleased that uh, it turned out that way i can't wait to listen to it i've already downloaded it onto my phone because i listen to audiobooks when i run Thank you, you know i did i i because i i uh i love being distracted from the horror that is running <laughs> <laughs> the best part about running is stopping. And so I try to distract myself. I stopped listening to music a long time ago because the music is, it becomes a measurement, right? You just need, okay, I got to run six songs. I got to run eight songs. But if somebody is telling you a story and it's riveting and, and, and if the story is good and it's matched with the narrator, it turns into this magical thing that, uh, that well, I, that I love. Well, I of course support that as long as you look both ways when you're crossing the streets. I you run know, trails. Put the earphones on. Okay, you're all right then. Yeah, I run trails. The only thing that scares the hell out of me is when the bikes zoom by at four thousand miles an hour. You know, <laughs> when you're running your trail and all of a sudden like that. But I, I do. I don't know. Are you? Because I, I had read a, that you're an audiobook fan too. That's what what was alluring to you. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I listen to a lot of audiobooks. Um, I, I really enjoy it. Uh, I don't do what I'm running, but I do it you know, when doing other things. Um, and uh, so when I had the opportunity to write one, and people asked, you know, do, you, do you wish it was a book, uh, you know, a print book? Uh, I mean, that would have been very different. It was very exciting to me uh, to have the, the sort of control that an author does where you can write this script, and if you have a talented actor like Christine Vam, bring it to life, you're literally inside somebody's head, you know, if they're wearing earbuds, inside somebody's head, uh, able to control the voices in their, their head. Uh, I, I don't want to get carried away, but as an author, you rarely have this uh, where there's, there's not the distractions of the other things going on. Um, and, you know, there's also not the, the sort of considerations for what is printed on the page or, you know, if you're a, a Film writer uh, having to you know work with all these different actors and work with uh, all this um, you know scenery and these other things. There, there's just this pure thing of storytelling that is is a, a wonderful thing uh, when you're working with a, a talented actor who can who can bring those voices that I originally heard in my head um, to life in somebody else else's head. Let me geek out with you for a second because I do this with everybody. Yeah, I, everybody that I realize I, I'm doing that for now. You know, I, I, everybody I find out lists of audiobooks. I love to get some suggestions for you. Who, to me, who are your favorite narrators? Give me a couple if you know off the top of your head, or and and books that I need to go download. What things that you love? Bonnie Turpin is a is a fantastic uh, narrator. Uh, she's wonderful. Um, Angela Daw, uh, who did my previous, I, I wrote a, a book called The Blue Period a few years ago. About uh, Pablo Picasso. Very good, stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, very good, thank you. Yes, it's called The Blue Period, um, and it's uh, it's about uh, a little-known chapter of his life. Um, those are those are two names off the top of my head. Um, there's there's others um, in terms of uh, something that's well done. 
the last thing that I listened to that I thought, man, was just really, really impressive work where uh, I became so immersed in the story was, you're here of a, a book called uh, A Brief History of Seven Killings. A it's, Brief uh, History of Seven Killings. Yeah, it is, it is set in Jamaica. Well, I guess it, it spans time, but it's set in Jamaica, and it's partially uh, centered on uh, the assassination attempts of Bob Marley. And uh, it's uh, this, this story that's told from multiple perspectives. I listened to it as an audiobook. Uh, and it's so well acted. I, I guess the reason why this one stands out to me. So, as you can imagine, it um, it you know people die in this book. Um, and there was this one period where I was doing something or other, and I was really into the story. And there was this scene where this person uh, was clearly going to meet their end, and it so happens that my battery of my my phone ran out at that that very moment. And I've got to say, there was a brief moment there where I was terrified where I was terrified because I felt like it was my end. Uh, I was so engaged in the story, and all of a sudden everything just went blank. And it was uh, it made me realize the quality of the acting and the quality of the storytelling. Uh, a Brief History of Seven Killings. Well, my thing I'll share with you is anything read by Ray Porter or hmm. Scott Brick or Roseman Pike, the actress, did the Paula Hawkins uh, novel, A Slow Fire Burning. She is mm -hmm. nothing short of jaw-dropping because she does exactly what you're saying. And, and Ray Porter's great about this, too. They, they, they do exactly what you're saying. Every character has their own unique voice. And hearing them interact with each other, hearing him go back and forth between the voices, and it sounds so damn natural. And you know the guy. It's one guy. And you're still going, there's just no way. There's no way. Uh, and some of the old schools, first person I ever heard do that, if you're old enough to remember David Ogden Steers, do you remember he was Colonel Charles Winchester on MASH, which may be well beyond your time scope. But he did the... When I was a, when I was a kid, I loved the, the theme song of MASH. It was, when I was a kid, you know, I mean, a little kid, I got really excited whenever that TV show came on. Really? Because I loved As the, a kid, the, you the loved Suicide song. is Painless. That's what you... That was your... <laughs> <laughs> Luke, you're a weird yeah, kid. I did. I'm just saying, um, you're a weird kid. I'm grafty. I mean, what can I say? <laughs> well, he played Charles Winchester, and he was the first one I saw. I heard him do Tom Clancy, uh, and mm -hmm. uh, he did the same thing. He gave a, each character their own little peculiarity that made them them. So when you hear those people like that, I can't wait to hear Catherine Bam. Like I said, I'm going to start as soon as I wrap up the one I'm listening to, I'm going to start listening to Takers Mad because uh, I can't wait to hear what it sounds like. Dude, I knew you were going to be so much fun. I knew you were. <laughs> Likewise, Gary. <laughs> I so enjoy this. I can't wait. Hey, when your next book comes out, come back. I'd love to. Luke Jared Coomer, the book is Takers Mad. That little thing he briefly wrote the blue the the uh, blue era period about the uh, time with Pablo Picasso right before he got into Cubism when he was a little long, a brilliant brilliant on that too. I've been studying that up. I'm going to pick that one up also. I can't wait to talk to you again. I can't wait to hear your work. Hey Gary, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us this week. If you love this episode, please subscribe, download a few more episodes, and please leave a review. Reviews really help us get this out to more people like you. Also, we'd love to hear what your favorite part was. Be sure to join us on social media to engage in even more unexpected conversations. Until next time. Music.